0: You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by Pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you. Happy Easter to you. Happy Easter. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. My name is Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. We are so, so grateful that you are here this morning. I am so excited uh, this morning to be here with you on Easter, opening God's Word. If you are visiting with us, uh, welcome. We are so grateful that you are here. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take the one in the seat in front of you as our gift to you. We want everyone to have an opportunity to read God's word. We are going to work through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we look at the victorious king celebrated on Easter Sunday. So let's pray. And then we're going to work through 1 Corinthians 15 together. Father God in heaven, we come before you. Lord, and we our hearts are just so full this morning. God, as we consider the wonder and the magnificence not only of the cross but of the resurrection, God, of the hope that we have as Christians, because we don't serve a God who is dead, but we serve a God who cannot be killed. We serve a God who is alive. And so we um, pray this morning, God, that you would help to impress that truth onto our hearts, that our hearts would just well up with joy, knowing who you are and what you have done uh, for us. God, it's absolutely mind-boggling that the king of the universe um, would come, or to this earth die for me, and come back to life. And we look forward, God, to meeting you face-to-face and being with you forever. We pray these things in your name, amen. All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. I gave it each little section a title. We're gonna read it chunk by chunk, because um, if you see it, it's pretty long, so we're just gonna work our way through it. The first one says this, the gospel is for all Christians. And we're gonna read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through for it says this Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again. On the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I think we've looked at this text before, but if, if you haven't been with us, look at what he's saying. Did you catch what he's saying in these first few verses? He's preaching the gospel to Christians. Right? Did you see that there? What he says, now I would what? I would remind you. What does that mean? If he's reminding them of this truth, then what's mean, what does that mean? It means it's already happened. He's already preached it to them. Right? And then look what he calls them. He says, hey, Brothers. Hey, Christians, right? Look at this. The gospel that I preached to you, right? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and raised then on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He's preaching the gospel to Christians. And I know you're really excited on Easter morning. We're going to do a little bit of grammar work for one second. So get ready for this. Let's look at that first verse. So it says, first of all, it says, which you received. What tense is that? That's past tense, right? In which you stand, what tense is that? That's present tense. And by which you are being saved, that's present to what? Future tense, right? And so it's, we can see that the gospel is for Christians, not just back then, but now and in the future, we need The gospel. And this isn't the only place that Paul preaches the gospel to Christians in Romans 1, in Galatians 2, in Ephesians 1 and 2, in Philippians chapter 1. All these places Paul preaches the gospel to Christians. As Christians, we need the gospel every single day. I love the way that Matt Chandler says it. He says this, so often we think of the gospel as a doorway that you simply walk through and are saved. But he says the gospel is not just the doorway, the gospel is the whole house. And isn't this interesting that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write these words at the start of his massive chapter on the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15 is the largest chapter, the largest writing on the resurrection, and that's why we're going to study it this morning. And so he's going to spend 53 verses talking about defending, applying, and giving reason to the hope that we have in the resurrection. But look what he reminds them of first. He reminds them of the whole gospel, right? It's not just a gospel that they needed in the past, but it's a gospel that they need right now. Christian, your broken marriage needs the gospel. Your loneliness needs the gospel. Your addictions need the gospel. Your fear and your control, your insecurities, your brokenness, my brokenness, they all need the gospel. And so let's remember that as we study this morning. In our next section, we come to some proof of the resurrection. Let's read that together, verses 5 through 8. This is what it says. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and that you just knew that they were gonna be skeptical about it from the get-go? So what you do is you lead with the proof off the start, right? You go up to your wife and you say, honey, I know that you're gonna say I don't need this new miter saw, but I've done the research and it's a really good miter saw and I've waited a long time for it to go on sale. And I want you, honey, just for a second to picture this brand new deck and I want you to finish this finished basement Right, And so you go and you lead with the proof, right? And maybe that's happened to you in your Christian life as well, right? You're telling someone the gospel, right? You're saying, hey, look, I've sinned, you've sinned, and that separates us from a perfect God. And they're like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. I can see that. And then because they know that they're not perfect. And then you tell them about Jesus coming to earth, and you're like, yeah, I've heard of Christmas, Right, and then you tell them that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to die in their place, right, to take the, your sin, right, the wrath of God on them on Himself, and they're like, "That's amazing! That's amazing that Jesus would do that for me." And then you start to tell them about the resurrection. You start to believe, tell them that you believe that someone came back from the dead, and they look like you, and then say, "Say what now?" And then they follow up with this: "You got any proof?" That's what they want to know, right? That's what they want to know. And so this is what Paul does here. Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church. But there's a group of them, even in the church, that doesn't believe in the resurrection and the dead from anybody, let alone Jesus. And this could have been for a couple of different reasons. Um, Some Christians could have been influenced by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were similar to the Pharisees. They were a group of religious elites. But one of the things that made you a Sadducee is that you didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Um, But what I personally think is the most likely reason for these people believing this, right, these Christians that had mixed with the culture, is that I think they had mixed with Greek culture, right? Because remember, what book are we in? We're in Corinthians, right? So what's what's that city? It's Corinth. And so Corinth was a Greek city, And so something that the Greeks believed, they believed that matter, that the physical world was evil, but the spiritual world was good. And so the idea of a resurrected body was simultaneously disgusting and impossible to their culture. And so what Paul's going to do is he leads with the proof. Here's the proof that he gave them. But the proof that he gave them before these verses was the verses that we just looked at Did you notice that? The first proof that he gave them for the resurrection was the church. In verses 1 through 5, he tells them, Brothers, the most convincing proof of the resurrection is the change in your life as Christians. That's why he's reminding them of the gospel. Right? It's God changing your heart from a heart of stone into a heart that's actually alive. He's moved your eternal destiny from hell to heaven. Right? And then in the goodness of God's grace, He doesn't just show us that our eternity's been changed, but He also changes us here on this planet as well. Right? It's God moving in my life, freeing me from the addiction of pornography. It's God moving in Pastor Ben's life, saving him from a life of addiction. It's God moving in your life, and you fill in the blank as a Christian. What has God saved you from? He says, the most convincing proof we have, brothers and sisters, is you. It's your changed heart. It's your changed life. It's the church. And then he goes, just in case that wasn't enough for you, he also appeared to Peter and to the disciples and to another 500 people at one time. And most of them are still alive. So you go ahead and you text them. And if you don't believe me and see if I'm telling you the truth. And then he also appeared to James And did I mention the apostles? And then last of all, he appeared to me. He says, hey, Christians, remember that crazy story that I told you that one night at supper when Jesus appeared to me in a blaze of glory, and it was so intense that I was blind for days. But God then didn't just heal my eyes, but he changed my heart. I went from hating his people to loving his people. I went from hurting his church to suffering for his church. Why did I do that? Why is the change? Because I met a resurrected Jesus. That's why. He's alive. He's alive. This is how I know that the resurrection is real. So then he's given them the proof, and he goes on to talk a little bit about grace. Look at 1 Corinthians fifteen nine through 11. It says this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me whether then it was i or they so we preach and so you believe i want to take a moment and talk a little bit about grace because we learn a couple of very interesting things about grace in this passage normally when we think of grace what do we think of we think of the unmerited favor of god right getting what we don't deserve and that's not wrong that's a good definition but I think we have something here to make our definition more robust. Something to add to our definition of grace. Because in grace, did you see what it says in the text there? It says that we have power through grace. That's what that text says there. And what does power and grace come from? Where does that power come from? You're like how is there power in grace? Right? It comes from the resurrection. Right, The unmerited favor of God has power because Jesus is alive, because he conquered sin and death. This power is driving the grace. And you say, Mark, I still don't get it. Let me show you two examples. Number one, grace redeems the worst pasts. Look at this text here. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And you might be sitting there right now thinking that's really great preacher man that you think God loves me. But you don't know what I have done. If anyone really like really actually completely knew what I have done, I can guarantee you that they would not love me. And if God's all knowing like you say, then there's no way that he loves me. Let me first encourage you that many of us have felt this, you're not alone in feeling that way. But there's also truth to be learned that contradicts that. You are right. I might not know what you have done, but I know the evil that's inside of me. I know the times in my life, you guys know some of my story, the times that I struggled with suicide the times that I was addicted to pornography, the times I've lusted after another man's wife in my head, the fear and the anger and the pride that can well up inside of me. I can so easily say with the Apostle Paul that of all the sinners on this planet, I'm the worst. Why? Because I know the evil inside of me best. And yet I found grace and I found forgiveness in the powerful grace of God right? Powerful grace. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he knew all of your sin. And so that forgiveness, that grace is available to you too, right? From the biggest things that you've done in your life that you don't want anybody to know, that you would never tell a soul to the things that you don't even know are sin yet. Christ died for those. He took those on himself, died the death that I deserved, that you deserved, so that you could have life with God. And that's true life, right? Being changed by God and living for God, that's real life. That's what we were created to do. And it's the power of grace driven by the resurrection because we serve a God who's not dead, but he's alive. Paul was an accessory to murder. He committed his life to ripping families apart by throwing Christians in jail. And yet by this grace of God, look what he says. He says, I am what I am. Do you know what he is? Despite all of his past, he's a child of God, right? Saved by grace through faith in the living example of God saving someone who literally devoted his life to hating and fighting against God. And yet in God's grace, God loved him and he saved him. Christians remember this, the gospel is not just the doorway, it's the whole house. You need the gospel desperately. When Jesus died in your place, he broke the chains of sin that you were trapped in. And I'll be honest with you, it's heartbreaking to watch some of you as Christians wrap these broken chains around your own wrists and keep yourself bound in the sin that Christ already died for, the sin that he's forgiven you for, but you can't forgive yourself. So I would encourage you to stop living in the guilt of your past. I'm begging you, stop living in the guilt of your past. Bring that sin into the light. Confess it, right? Bring it to others. Bring it to God and tell God, look, this has trapped me for far too long. Would you help me? Right, what is it? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Right? That's what we want. That's what we want to live in. And those are the first steps to living in freedom, powered by grace. The grace of God redeems the worst pass. The second thing we learn, which is very interesting, is that the grace of God empowers the best work. I don't know if I've never thought of it like this until I studied this text, but it's so interesting. Look at it. Look what Paul says. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Right? So what's powering the work? It's grace. That's what's powering the work. It was grace-empowered work. And how's that driven by the resurrection? I think it's the natural response when you really understand mercy and grace. Let me give you a little word picture so you can see what I'm talking about. I want you to picture this. Picture yourself in medieval times and you just hate the king that's over top of you. You hate everything that he stands for. And so you decide to strike back at the king because really deep down you think you could do better and you want to be king. So you sneak into the castle with a cup of poison and your plan is to poison the water supply so the king and the family and his people will die. But as you sneak through the castle you get caught by one of the guards and they take that cup of poison, and they drag you in front of the king. And the guards are about to make you drink that own poison that you had brought. But then the king commands them to stop. And he sends his son over. And you don't know what's gonna happen next, but his son willingly walks over, and then he takes that cup of poison out of your hand, and he drinks it. He drinks every last drop, and he falls over dead on the floor right in front of you. And at this point, you're just dumbfounded. You don't know what has just happened. You barely eat. You barely sleep. You barely function. And before you know it, three days have gone by. And the king's son finds you sleeping in the floor of the horse's stable. And he invites you to come in and to live and eat with the king and himself. You're just dumbfounded by the fact that you even see the king's son again because you saw him drop dead on the floor and you're even more dumbfounded by the fact that he would invite you to their table and invite you to work for them. Let me ask you this. How do you now view the king and his son? How will you work for the king if that's what happened to you, right? If that's what happened to you and now the king's son is your boss, what would you do? You would do everything for him. You would give everyone everything to the one who died in your place. That's what grace-empowered work looks like as we work for the king. Paul moves on and talks a little bit about the significance of the resurrection. He gives us a number of points. Let's look at it in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Right. That's what they were saying. But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in Your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Right? Those who have died. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. We learn a number of things here about the significance about the resurrection. And so Paul does them all in the negative, and we're going to flip them around and look at them in the positive. The first thing that we see, look at verse 14, we see that we can be forgiven right? If Christ has not been raised, what does he say? He says that our preaching is in vain, but because Christ has been raised, our preaching's not in vain. And what are they preaching, right? We're preaching that we can be forgiven of our sins and be with God both now and in forever because of the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, and because of the resurrection, because of the empty tomb. That's number one. We see that we can be forgiven. Number two, we find out this, that our faith is not in vain right because that's what he says look your, your faith is in vain but since christ is raised then our faith is not in vain you ever wonder sometimes you're like oh man is this all for nothing if christ is raised this is not for nothing number three our faith is true it kind of bounces off of that doesn't fifteen? In verse 15, it says this, if Christ has not been raised, then we're found misrepresenting God, right? We're literally false witnesses about God because we said that he's really God and that he raised Christ from the dead. But the resurrection is true. So everything that we know about God is true because we serve a God who's not dead, but a God who's alive. Number four, we have freedom. We have freedom. Right? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Right, That's a horrible place to be. But the positive of that is what? Because Christ has been raised, we're not still in our sins. He has the power to forgive sins. We have freedom. Would you live in that freedom? Number five, we have eternal hope. Verse 18 if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep, right, those who have died as Christians, have perished. It doesn't matter that they believed in Jesus, they stayed dead. But since Christ is raised, then what? Right? Those who have died in Christ have a living hope. Right? They are with God. Number six, we are immeasurably blessed. Maybe this verse more than any other sums up the joy of the resurrection says, look, if Christ hasn't been raised and it's only in this life that we have Christ, then we are to be pitied as people because we've wasted our lives, right? But we haven't wasted our lives because Christ is alive. So we're not to be pitied. We have an eternal hope. We have an eternal blessing that will never perish, spoil, or fade. These are the things that point us to the significance of the resurrection. Then Paul goes on, he keeps going, he's just hammering them. Look at what he says in First Corinthians fifteen, twenty through twenty-eight. It says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is as plain that he is expected as those who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. That's a lot of subjection, so let's talk about it. What's the greatest enemy of every single human who doesn't follow Jesus? It's death. What's the greatest fear of every single person who doesn't know Christ, who's not a child of God? It's death for themselves, and it's death for those that they love. And yet here in 1 Corinthians 15, we're given this short story about death. Death came into the world through Adam, right? Through a man, but it's also going to be defeated. It was defeated by a man, right? But no ordinary man, the God man, Christ Jesus, right? And this is the greatest news, right? We're given the greatest hope, right? We've talked about it. We've sung about it, but here's the question. Do you live in it? Do you live in this hope? Do you live without fear? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road in our faith, is it not? In the most challenging parts of your life, when you look death in the face, or when death stares at someone that you love, or when death takes someone that you love, how do you respond do we mourn? Absolutely we mourn. Because we're going to miss them like crazy. But do we mourn without hope? No. Not if they're a believer. Not if they know Christ. Right? Do we become hopeless? No. Right? We have a hope because Jesus is alive. Why do we have this hope? There's two things that we learn about this from the resurrection. Number one, we learn that God really is eternal, right? That means he lives forever, right? So that if he lives forever, if death can't kill him, then he has the power to invite us into his eternal existence. Quick theology moment here. When we go to heaven, we don't become eternal, okay? Just remember that. Why? Because eternal means what? No beginning and no end. We have a beginning as people and then Christ invites us into his existence and then we have no end. Only God is eternal. We don't become eternal. But because of that, we have a hope in God, right? That we will have no end. And number two, all that talk about subjection, what does that mean? That means that we serve a king who's victorious, right? This passage is all about power and victory that he's going to put everything under his feet, That saying would have given people a couple different um, connotations, a couple different ideas. The first is this. um, Kings, when they would conquer another king in battle, they would literally go and step on the neck of the king that they conquered. That showed total subjection, total victory, total dominance. And it says this is what Christ is going to do. He's going to put everything under subjection. That he's going to reign over everything. He will be in complete, powerful control. And the second thing that he does in this putting everything under the feet is kings, what they would do is they would, a lot of time they'd have a raised platform and then their throne would be on top and then people would come and they would bow down to them. And so what happens if you're up and the person's bowing down, what's happening? You're literally under their feet, right? And so this is the picture that we're giving, that he is over top, he's in control, he has preeminence in everything. He's at the top, there's nothing else to gain it's Christ in Christ alone now we move to the next couple sections for sake of time we're not going to read them all I'm just going to give you a summary in 29 through 34 I would encourage you to read this stuff later um, but here's here's the here's the the one minute version the effects of denying the resurrection right and so he, I think he when he talks about this this could be intellectually right, and say, I don't believe in the resurrection. But it also could potentially be in the way that you're living, right? We can say that we believe in the resurrection, but like I've been challenging you, do you live in the resurrection? As God's been challenging me this week, do you live like I'm resurrected? But if we deny the resurrection, right, what does that mean? It means there's no reason to live for God, right? You might as well live for yourself. But he says, if you're living like that, then you show you have no knowledge of the truth, you show you don't really understand what actually happened because Jesus really did come back to life. And remember who's writing this? It's Paul, I don't remember what he told him. Right? He said, Jesus changed my life. I have met him on the road. How are the dead raised? What kind of bodies are they raised with? That's the questions that get asked in um, this next section, thirty-five, all the way down to forty nine. And again, for sake of time. I wish we had time to dive into all of this and maybe some other time we will, but here's the short version. Paul is pointing us to the glorious hope that we have as Christians, right? And this is the glorious hope that one day we will have new bodies and be with God. Okay, one one quick minute. Um, 42 through 44, look what it says there. We can do this quickly, right? Look at what it says in 42 through 44. It's gonna show us some things that we have as a glorious hope, right? The reality that one day we'll have new bodies, no more sickness or death, no more shame or dishonor because of sin, no more frailty or weakness in sin, no more limits of the time-space continuum. And then look at verse 49 with me. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What a beautiful picture. What a glorious hope is that. And now we come to our final section and we look at the final victory and it's beautiful what he points us to. Let's read it together. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit God the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, right? That doesn't mean literally sleep. It means die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, what are we called to do? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord, your labor, your work is not in vain. Because of that grace we talked about. Hallelujah. Right, this is the good news of the resurrection right? That Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God, right? This is the good news of the resurrection. It's the goal of the gospel. I'm going to preach it till I'm blue in the face. If I go walk out that door and get hit by a bus, I want you to remember this. If you remember one thing I've taught you, remember this, that the gospel is that you would be with God both now and in eternity. And that's made possible because of the resurrection, and we get this little taste of it here on earth, right? As the spirit of God indwells in us, right? We get glimpses of it in the church and in our obedience to Christ of us being with God. But we're gonna look forward to an even greater experience when Christ returns. And that's what this passage is talking about. Brothers and sisters, are you looking forward to the day when you're going to meet Jesus Christ face face to face. I know, does it not get you excited? right? This is the goal of the resurrection. This is the hope that we have in Easter. This is what the resurrection ultimately points to, that we're going to live with God and see him. I love that song that Mercy Me says when it says this. I can only imagine when that day comes and I find myself Standing in the sun, I can only imagine when all I will do is forever, forever worship you. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. What a glorious, glorious day that will be. And this is all summed up so perfectly by a song that's been on repeat in our home um, on that day by City at Light. Um, It's a summary of 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what it says. It says, I believe in Christ risen from the dead. He now reigns victorious. His kingdom knows no end. Through his resurrection, death has lost its hold. I know on that final day, I'll rise as Jesus rose. On that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voices, one. Can you wait to do that? Till that day, we will praise you for your never Ending grace and we will keep on singing on that glorious day hallelujah what a day it will be for at home with you my joy is complete and as i run into your arms open wide i will see my father who is waiting for me this is the hope This is the victory that's made possible by our victorious king through the resurrection. Do we fear death as Christians? No. But it's so much more than that. We've been given life, true life, right? The glorious privilege of being with God both now and in forever because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we serve a gracious king, because we serve an eternal king, because we serve a victorious king, because we serve a king who's alive. Let's pray together. God, we come before you and we look forward to the day when our joy will be made complete. God, when we will stand before you face to face. Lord, but right now we come and we just fall on our knees and we say thank you Thank you that in your love, you chose to come to the cross for us. But even more than that, thank you that you didn't stay dead. Thank you that in power, you rose from the grave. You came back to life. You showed yourself to so many people, and you've changed our hearts. You've changed my heart. May we remember the proof of the resurrection is first and foremost in the church, It's in the changed lives of people. People's lives aren't changed because someone's still dead. My life's changed. These people's lives are changed because you are alive, God. And I pray for those today whose lives have not yet been changed by you, God, who've been holding out Who said, I don't know if I want to follow you yet. God, would today be the day that they would choose to follow you? that they would know God beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love them more than anything else in the world, that you created them. God, to be with you and to love you, to serve you, God. And as Christians, would we serve you with that grace-filled power, that grace-filled work, knowing that the king's son died in our place. And now he invites us to his table. He invites us to come and work for him. God, would we we work for him? Would we be steadfast and immovable because of the hope that we have in Christ? Hallelujah. What a day that will be. We love you, God, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.